Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Jason Horsley for the New Books Network, talking to Jonathan Leeson about his latest novel, A Gambler's Anatomy. I would actually start with something that I received this morning in an email because I like things that are just fresh and seem to be you know, part of what's going on in the present and mm-hmm. it, it, I, this would have made me think of you even if I hadn't been going to talk to you so I'll just read it to you real quick it's from this writer Michael Lesher who's a very interesting writer he writes about child abuse in the Orthodox Jewish community and uh, I spoke to him recently so we corresponded and uh, we were just commiserating over the, the painful nature of our, our, our research. And he wrote this to me. He wrote, The religious sense points to limits in our experience that we recognize as limits, even though they remain, as it were, impenetrable. We try to perceive our reality as if from a dimension we cannot grasp. Nietzsche recognized that this effort leaves a permanent mark, which is in some sense a disability, Singed by the fire, he wrote, those who approached it are never again fully intelligible to others. Hmm. That's funny you say that because uh, that's a very interesting sequence of thoughts. And just this morning, the only thing I wrote today was that someone in um, Denmark, I think it's Denmark, is, is putting together this very eccentric international lexicon where they're asking writers in all different languages to define words and then they're publishing the whole thing without translation so the English will be in English and the you know Danish will be in Danish and so forth and I'm one of the English writers but he they throw you they throw you words to define and he threw me the word oneness and my well, maybe I should read read to you my definition of oneness that I sent him because I'll get it wrong and it'll be a little bit better if I read you the actual uh, what I sent um, but it, it, it it's completely consonant with what you just uh, what you just quoted me I wrote oneness is what the moment you step back to regard it you betray it the way the astronauts betrayed humanity and perhaps even became inhuman by looking at earth from the moon step closer and it dissolves O-N-E-N-S never mind oneness isn't and that's my that was my entry oneness but this um alien perspective that immediately that's um fundamentally 
traumatizing and perhaps divides you from the human realm is is in both was in your both both in your inbox and my outbox this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's um I mean not to get stuck on the astronaut thing you use that as an example but it's a very powerful one because it's a very non-conformist position needless to say uh, and it's very much what prisoner infinity is about now that you put it in those terms that kind of betrayal of dissociation that relates to space travel and trying to leave the planet but uh, yeah without getting sidetracked into that the larger resonance of what you just said is in something that I was writing in my notes about a gambler's anatomy, which is, and I will just try and paraphrase myself, that Lisa um, is forever trying to write about what is not. Um, and I, I made a comment like something like, it's like you're trying to write and still leave the page blank. <laughs> but I like that. Yeah, and, or, or to, to work by a process of exclusion. I mean, this connects... Also, with, um, I mean, a simpler uh, or more or less esoteric description might be to try to write outside yourself, which is like the astronaut leaving and trying to look at the Earth from the moon, which connects to, you know, the Keatsian idea of the negative capability. Hmm. Have we already discussed this? I'm having- I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, that, that the, the goal of the writer is to write as other than oneself, to get outside into an, an indefinite uh, voice that that's not that's not originating from yourself, and mm. um, so right to, to to write what is not. I like I like I like the suggestion, and um, I mean there's also you know Bruno as a character is trying to uh, slip the noose of of uh, origins of self-definition and and trauma um, into some you know um, unfixed position you know he's a gambler at a game that he he claims to prefer because it's um it's honest you can always see what's what's true on a backgammon board there are no hidden cards so it's mm-hmm. a preference for surfaces, right? As opposed to depths and secrets. Yeah, that that was one of the recurring themes that that I stumbled across time and time again was the the uh, juxtaposition of shallow and deep, and also inner and outer. Mm-hmm. And so when you were to, and, but, and then I also hypothesized from that as talking about conscious and unconscious, and the metaphor of the blood is that when he sees his own blood, he faints. So when he sees what's inside of him, uh, as in what what is unconscious becomes conscious, he himself becomes unconscious, right. which is <laughs> what you were describing there as trying to write outside of yourself. It's like a conscious kind of automatic writing whereby you don't actually lose your own awareness of what's happening, yeah. even though you want to get out of the way of what's happening. Um, and one of the ways... <clears throat> I mean, the first question, I, formal question I had for you relates to this was to what extent are your novels coded? Because more, more even than Chronic City, my experience of Gamma's Anatomy, and I don't know how much of this is just me uh, feeling this symbiotic connection to your own unconscious because I've 
related so much to your writing, but uh, that it seemed to be more the most coded novel mm-hmm. of yours, at, le- at least since Chronic City that I've read. Yeah, I, I'm very interested in that suggestion. Of course, you sent me the link to uh, the, the the Lolita Code and the idea that Nabokov identified with the uh, the word code specifically. You know that that um, documentary about cracking the code of Lolita begins with, you know, as it were, a kind of a confession or a, or a or a provocation or it. Uh, invitation from from Nabokov to treat his books as codes because he himself is oh taking possession of that word he says I I I I I regard them as codes and I think that I would prefer to move sideways to some other suggestion that I don't think of them as codes per se but uh, perhaps more as um, I think the word I would choose would be a rebus series of images that are, that add up to some other meaning, um, but are undeniably also themselves. You know, when you look at a puzzle that's in the form of a rebus, it's a series of visual things and plus signs or equal signs. And again, (laughs) in a sense, everything's, something on its face you know a hamburger is a hamburger <laughs> uh, uh, you know Berlin is Berlin um, and and yet the the series of things adds up to some other unquantifiable thing in the manner of a rebus where you're always in the presence of the clue with its own tangible properties um, the clue doesn't dissolve just because you're pursuing what the different uh, huh. emblematic presences or situations or set pieces or t- you know the uh, iconography of the book is very important to me you know hmm. uh, as a series of encounters and most I'd say in fact you know when I say it's a like a, a rebus, I'd say most of my attention goes on, you know, if, if, if the rebus is, you know, hamburger plus tumor plus Berlin plus California plus, you know, or minus Singapore um, plus, right. plus hangman's noose minus, yeah. you know, the Haymarket riots. You know, if, if, if all of those things are meant to be puzzled over it is as if you could, could actually conjugate them and come out with a, a the, a successful meaning, I spend as much time painting the most dedicated and eloquent hamburger as I can. But making the rebus um, beautiful and charged with um, with with presence, I think that's the best word for it, is as important as what it as the effort I may put into or the wish I may put in, in a sense, it's almost more of a kind of a, a desire, not under my command, that the, that the rebus produce some in, immense sense of cumulative power and meaning in your, in your, um, in your conjugation of it, you know, when you put it mm-hmm. all together. So, whereas a code sounds like once you've cracked the code, the clues dissolve, they become secondary. They're only a, 
uh, an avenue or a or a medium for this other meaning. In the case of a rebus, I mean, you know, let me let me step sideways again and say this is a rebus in the with a level of commitment um, that you might find uh, in in my in my idealization anyway of what I do. You might say that this is a rebus painted with the with the care found in a painting by you know Rene Magritte or or um, or, or or Max Ernst where. I want you to be almost overwhelmed by the presence of the clues themselves as experiences, mm-hmm. as something that you undergo and and abide with and, and contemplate. You know, I'd like you to be able to kind of walk in and touch the clues and feel that they're so absolutely themselves that, you know, the interpretation is um, is is necessary, even if you can never completely arrive at it. That that uh, the invitation to 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 sit with these things and make them into something complete and total, make a meaning come out at the other end, is is made necessary by the beauty with which or the, the intensity with which they're experienced. That seems like that would be a a very delicate balance because you're describing like making the clues so real that as in real life a clue is not just a clue like if you find a you know a handkerchief on the floor of a murder scene that might indicate who the killer is but it's still just a handkerchief as it's what you're saying and so if the the reader got so immersed in the objects that you intend to be clues they could even forget that they're clues or never even realize that they're clues yeah i mean i think that for me that's that's why it's a it's a um the, the highest game is to make uh, the, the book feel like a kind of a a life experience where everything is connected to meanings and outcomes that that you conclusions or you know um, it uh, distilled into emotions or reflections, um, but it's also undergone. It's also embodied. Mm. I mean, do you forget as a writer? Because the first sense I got from what you were describing there was that, oh, Lisa himself doesn't know what the code means. So, well, do you, I don't. Yeah. I don't have a a, a decisive, um, preemptive kind of meaning that I'm trying to produce. I, I myself am going to arrive uh, mm. at it as a as a as a form of um, interpretations of sensations that I'll experience having put these things into the same um, place. I mean, if the, if the, if, if the meaning was simple enough to, um, to look at in advance, I wouldn't be very driven to write the book. And I wouldn't think the book would convey the sense, the air of, um, of discovery or, or, um, you know the propositional intensity of an experience where things are meaning is being produced, not not being referred to, but being produced. Mm-hmm. I, I would think. I mean, my impression reading Gamma's Anatomy was that this certainly could be read as your other novels as a narrative, mm-hmm. as a story, and without any 
attention trapped by the metaphorical underlayer. I had the opposite experience, and part of my part of the fascination and the confusion and what I wrestle with while reading it and while writing about it is, you know, how much am I um, spiking the ground of your own novel, or how much am I uh, projecting my own meanings into what I'm doing because I've developed this relationship with your writing, but <laughs> my experience was that uh, this is all metaphor. Like, everything was that happened, I found a metaphorical meaning in it, and I didn't have to look very far, at least up to a certain point. Uh, there was a certain point in the novel where I lost the metaphoric thread, and I felt I felt lost. I felt abandoned by you, the writer. We can get to that at a certain point, maybe. Um, but certainly for the first two-thirds, almost the first two books, I was just constantly finding this goal. It was like panning for gold like in the narrative in the events it just kept recurring um the same meanings again but deepening and expanding and um becoming more coherent mm -hmm. um well, yeah. i like i like the description and of course i'm 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 anxious that it feels that it uh abandoned you at some point um i do i do want this book to to feel uh, turbulent with um, concentrated meetings under the surface. You know, it's not, it's not, it's mostly not a very, um, you know, the Bruno himself doesn't have the capacity to think abstractly or, or, you know, I guess I'd say, you know, philosophically in, in very sustained ways uh, mm -hmm. at, at all. But so the book should feel, that it's asking you to 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 understand what he can't, <laughs> you know, um, and and com and you know, and commanding your attention in a sense by this uh, anxiety that there's something very important to understand that's that's elusive. Um, I hope that's there. Yeah. Would you say that the book was a tragedy? Yes, I think it's a. a, a I I'm not, I would actually characterize this book as a, a horror novel. Um, I mean, if we're looking for sort of the, the, the literary genre, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, um, absurdist, uh, existential horror novel. And I don't, I can't think of very many places where I would say openly that I intend it to be, you know, to participate in that tradition or that genre, because the expectations that surround horror, you know, apart from my surgery, there isn't, there isn't, there isn't enough gore, there isn't enough terror, and people are just going to um, think that I'm trying to participate in something that I'm not, you know, a game that I'm not even trying to play, which is that of freaking you out or, or making you scared. But the, the descent seems to me one of, that's more characteristic of, that genre than of the genre of tragedy. Um, it's it's a um, a trap, and Bruno can't escape the trap. There's some moments where you might hope that he can. Um, whereas a tragedy, I think, is conducted on slightly other terms. Hmm. So, um, I mean, one of the things that was clear, and I think you've already said this about the novel, is, is about the 
you didn't put it this way, I did, about the pull of the past. Mm-hmm. You mentioned trauma, which of course is one of my yeah. areas of interest, and I did feel that there was some trauma in, in Bruno's past that wasn't being referred to, and I thought, oh, I'm, I must be just imagining that because I see trauma everywhere. Um, but certainly his whole uh, trajectory and momentum seems to be... Uh, a reaction against something, an attempt to get out of something, yeah. and, and so, so what you're describing it seems is that that's what that's the trap he's in. In a sense, his attempt to get out of the trap, to get away from the past, is what what leads to him becoming fully uh, imprisoned in it. Well, absolutely. But the way out of the past is, um, and in this, I'm indebted to the to some terms that were introduced into my thinking by. Uh, a writer I know I've recommended to you, Lawrence Rickles. Um, the 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 way out of the trap of the past is through um, uh, successful mourning. You know, um, and Bruno's attempt is um, to do what, uh, of course, you know, an addict would would traditionally call a doing a geographical. He tries to mm-hmm. just step physically out of the the traumatic scenario rather than addressing it or mourning it um as it as it requires and um he's not i mean he's hardly alone <laughs> in this kind of you know uh, this and this is where i think in some important way the book is about europe and california about this idea that you can you know, migrate away from the site the, the, of the tomb <laughs> in which you're implicated. Mm. Uh, I, I have to ask this, not just for vanity's sake, but for honesty's sake. Um, were you, because in the afterwards, seen not seen it, that was written in Berlin, and of course the novel begins in Berlin, and I think you mentioned reading Seen and Not Seen on the train in Europe. So were you working on this novel while you were reading Seen and Not Seen? Oh, sure, absolutely. I mean, it was where I was uh, thinking about your interpretations of my of my writing quite a lot as I was... I mean, you could say most simply, this is the first book I've written that has the benefit of your interpretations. Um because I was, I was without them until then. So as a fundamental, you know, context, uh, they're, they're present. And, um, and I think resonated with my responses to a number of other pieces of, uh, you know, stim- stimulus that, that I, that I credit with the inception of this book. I was rereading Graham Greene, who I'd read when I was in my, you know, early teenage years. I'd read him at 13, 14, 15, 16, compulsively. I was in Berlin, so I was thinking about the condition of expatriatism, which is partly your own situation. Mm -hmm. And I began to relate to the idea of a literal expatriate character as opposed to a figurative one. I realized that I'd taken what is always literal in green, these Englishmen abroad, understanding or not understanding these other places and what they have, those other places have to tell them about who they are and what they've left behind in England. 
Um, and I, I began to, to want to claim this motif in a more literal and direct way to connect the idea of national identity and trauma, which is also one of your subjects. This, you know, um, aristocratic, corrupt England that you flee but can't abandon and mm -hmm. the, the traumatic legacy that you can't resolve that comes from a kind of a decadent backdrop and and also you, you know your um, alertness to the uh, the kind of um, super charismatic super corrupt figures in in you know that I that I work with again and again these these kind of uh, Svengali uh, false stops you know they're like bad charismatic bad charismatic charismatic uh, surrogate fathers uh, mm. it's, you know it's it's something that I I I have recurrent in the work and um, I associate it with influences like Orson Welles films, Mr. Arkadin and um, Touch of Evil and uh, and but placing that in a more specific um, you know uh, the, the, the guru in the background who walks with uh, Bruno on the beach and tells him that he's special and powerful uh, mm -hmm. and then and then you know his when you talk about his unresolved traumas, you know, the the influence of that kind of mentorship or sponsorship in his psyche, and then the way he helplessly helplessly reproduces that in his relationship with Edgar Falk, um, you know, who's a sort of manager or or handler. Right. I think a lot of that connects to your interpretations of seen and not seen and 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 other work you were doing around that time that you were drawing my attention to uh you know on, on your blog well i mean that's quite quite surprising probably shouldn't be uh I mean, it's, it wasn't there's much more than the validation i was looking for so um i'll try not to be gobsmacked uh the the specific um Thing that I felt reading Gamma's Anatomy was uh, was the parallels with my brother of this character. Yeah. Well, I I don't know that much about your brother beyond what what your work informs me of, but he's very compelling, and and you know I I connect him to other things that that have entranced me. I mean, the the. Um, uh, Adam Curtis's series of BBC documentaries called The Mayfair Set that depicts this world of men's, you know, gentlemen's club back rooms in London and how they influenced the arms trade and the, you know, the oil oil, oil fields in, in distant lands and so forth. Connected, I think, also with you know your your description of your brother's world and the the uh, this this uh, air of 
you know, kind of decadent access. And Bruno himself is, he's kind of a, um, I mean, what, what do you call it? He's like a, a dandy in the underworld, but, but, but he's also a total, you know, not naive. He's, he's like, you know, I, I also think of, you know, I was consciously and unconsciously reproducing images from, uh, your favorite filmmaker, Stanley Kubrick, of course, with Barry Lyndon and, and, um, eyes wide shut. Those, those mm-hmm. journeys into the underworld, half understood journeys into the underworld by these naive characters who are not competent to manipulate the, the aristocrats among whom they find themselves. Um, so yeah, I think that that's probably lurking in there too. You know, there are all sorts of things. This is this is always the case for me that if something's good enough or strange enough to get onto the page for me, it's because it's um, hyper. Uh, it's 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 already bearing hyper interpretive, you know, burdens. <laughs> it, it's um, it's overdetermined, and um, so you know, he's Bruno is two or three different people I've known personally growing up, including one, well, friend, younger brother of a friend who actually became a professional backgammon hustler at one point, but with whom I've had no contact as a, as an adult. Um, he's you know he's Ryan O'Neill and Barry Lyndon. He's um, Tom Cruise and Eyes Wide Shut. He's your brother. He's, you know, about a dozen other things. To even begin to be something I can write about, he has to be sort of a impossible, capacious container for all of these different things that are stirring and, and, and disturbing me. Hmm. Yeah, well, the, the, the line that stands out most uh, strikingly as being a Sebastianism is, is, is where Bruno thinks to himself that his sole life accomplishment is his personality. Mm-hmm, right. Which is absolutely what dandyism was about in my brother's eyes yeah. and what he what he, he embodied and um Yeah, but it, you know, in a way, I mean I uh, obviously your your brother's story is a tragic one, but in a way your brother's accomplishment is surpasses Bruno's because Bruno aspires to that. He, he flatters himself. <laughs> Your brother, for what it's worth, and I think you might say very little, he did accomplish a, a, an unforgettable personality. Bruno is almost more a, a kind of a, a, a piece of raw canvas on which there are a few jottings. <laughs> Your brother was a kind of extremely garish painting that, that hung on a very prominent wall to the amazement and admiration of, 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 you know, a great number of people. He was a really extraordinary, uh, uh, case of the personality as, as the life accomplishment. Bruno is a kind of, um, undercooked (laughs) personality. He's actually better at just occupying that space briefly for people who, who who might fantasize about him for a night or two and then realize he's so under uh, underdeveloped that he's not he's not amusing for more than a couple of nights 
you either win or lose a lot of money. You might have sex with him. But, you know, I think your brother was unforgettable. I think Bruno, seen from the outside, might be terribly forgettable. Hmm. Well, even... Uh, uh... I don't want to say as a literary creation he's forgettable because that would definitely be the wrong that would communicate the wrong thing he's very memorable in the context of the world that you've put him but as a character uh, he's, he's, he does seem to be mostly externals uh, except for what he's wrestling with so that might seem like a contradiction because he's wrestling with huge existential problem but he doesn't seem to be aware of it perhaps as, yeah uh, yeah well he's he's he's, he's a self-devised vacuum. He's a mask even before he put he puts on a mask. And then his right. problem, his existential problem is what what to do having having successfully created a, a, a vacuity where you ought to have a self. You know? So it's a very uneasy existential problem because the, the person isn't deep enough to have one. <laughs> the problem is having rendered oneself shallow out of some imperative or necessity is can you ever be deep enough even to suffer so is that is that the problem then is that he's not because I'm just trying to feel my way around this novel having read it and as I said come away with a a sense of dissatisfaction even though I'm haunted by it and even haunted by the possibility that that feeling of being abandoned by the narrative and that feeling of disappointment was actually intrinsic to the narrative because that was Bruno's experience. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, I'm definitely unsure of what just happened, as I say, you know, having read it and having more than just read it, having you know, imbued it, or not imbued it, the opposite, absorbed it. I even dreamt about it last night. Um, I also dreamt that you sent me another copy, <laughs> like a new a new draft. <laughs> Um, but anyway, coming back to what you were saying, the suffering, um, do you think that part of what you're describing there, then, of his trap, is his inability to suffer, to really suffer what his, his condition? I think that's... I hadn't formulated it until this conversation, but it seems a pretty good name for, for one of the problems. I mean, you know, so to put it in the light of a book you know very well... You know, he's, I mean, the nearest character to Bruno in my in my earlier work is obviously Chase and Stedman. I don't know if that yeah. came, came into your thoughts, but it's... Yeah, yeah, very much so. It's pretty direct. And in a way, you could see this book as an experiment in isolating Chase from the other elements, the other propositions in Chronic City, especially, of course... Perkis Tooth. This is a Chase and Stedman who never gets filled up for better and worse with with the kind of meaning that a Perkis Tooth insists he mm. experience, including the, the 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 love that risks tragedy, because when right. Perkis dies, it's tragic for Chase and Stedman. But Bruno. You know, I mean, in a way, if you look at this book as a as a, a satirical reexamination of the Jason Stedman figure, you know, he's he's offered a kind of a a poor man's Perkis Tooth in the Anarchist, 
mm-hmm. the the the, the uh, slider cook, and he makes as little of him ultimately as you know, I might believe Chase and Stedman would really make of Perkis Tooth. <laughs> he can't take it in. Mm. Um, and, you know, so I think it's a very despairing book in some ways. Yeah, I was just going to say that very word. It seems to be soaked in despair. Um, something you just said is kind of intriguing. Maybe it's just intellectually so, but I think there's more there, which is the idea of taking a character, and and as I see it, your characters, and this is always true of writers, but I think it's particularly observable with your work, or some of it, that that they're your literary avatars. Mm -hmm. You create a version of yourself, and then you put it into this world. Um, And uh, so, and what you just described there is the idea of taking the, the same literary avatar and putting him into a different genre uh-huh, yeah. and seeing how that genre so you took you took chase from a sci-fi surrealist whatever you would call chronic city uh absurdist uh, social commentary novel and then you put him into a, a horror novel and of course the outcome was far worse yeah yeah and the horror genre that was lucky he's not as ironically chase feels more but is also his teflon works better bruno feels less, but his Teflon is completely scraped off. <laughs> yeah, but see, I mean, it seems as though Bruno goes through so much more, mm-hmm. um, and I, I imagine you intended this, it, it seems as though he's um, taken through a rite of passage which has the potential to um, transform him genuinely. Is that, is that your and... disappointment, that he wasn't able to be transformed I, I don't think it was simply that because um, I'm a realist and I know that it's like lightning striking in a bottle that kind of thing that, that we can actually somehow open and surrender to events to the extent that we are truly transformed I think it almost never happens but um, so it wasn't simply that but it was well, there was there was a um, an uncertainty of, of how much you, the author, were, um, I don't want to say it's difficult to use words, because it's not in control, because one of the things I, lo- I love about the way you write is it seems that you're not controlling it. Um, and I can't even say not conscious of, because that's another thing that's nice, is that a lot of the time it seems that you're not quite conscious of what's coming out. But somehow as though, and this is feels risky just saying this, but that you were backed away from something just as Bruno did, but I couldn't tell mm. if, if it was you or if it was Bruno or if it was both. So the disappointment actually um, is inseparable also from a structural one, which I felt that, and I still feel this a few days later, that the action that you pack into the last book or the last hundred pages, mm-hmm. there's so much action and I use in my notes. I use the dogme term "superficial action," which of course means violence and guns, right. and yeah. all of this stuff is happening after these almost two hundred pages of slow build-up, but also kind of a searching, metaphorical, surreal narrative where um, we're really discovering the extent of Bruno's crisis or his existential condition, and then suddenly all this stuff happens, and. Um, so it wasn't so much how it 
came out in terms of it ending the way it ended it, it was that I didn't feel um that I was that uh the the meanings of the experiences that were happening to Bruno were fully communicated I mean I I felt that and this is like a, a weirdly positive criticism at least it's a lot better than the opposite that the book was just way too short mm -hmm. like I needed another 200 pages yeah. extra yeah. to explore all of that what happened to Bruno when he took this wrong step um, and just to say something more specific around this so maybe give you more to respond to that uh, the, I began to feel this when when Magikin is coming, so his his anima figure is coming to rejoin him, and right for that he has this, this, the backgammon, the strip backgammon seduction scene with Tina. Um, the, I, I mean, I wasn't sure at this point what's Lethem doing. Is is he the, the character is going to get saved by the feminine, and that whole felt like a trope, and like this isn't going to work, or you know, that that that's not right. That's not. Uh, you know, freedom from identity, which has seemed to be the the real the goal here that was in sight. Um, and then the actual strip back gown scene was very interesting in retrospect because I was reading it, I was thinking, I found the scene really almost horrific. Mm -hmm. I found the scene so bleak, and yet, and I think this is part of your art, but you may you may disagree and say I read it wrong, but uh, it, it seemed like it it was meant to be read as as a entertaining sexual seduction scene where Bruno's getting what he wants and but no it, there's actually something really bleak and terrible like he's taking taking all the wrong turns mm -hmm. making all the wrong moves yeah yeah it's sex it's drugs it's gambling <laughs> this isn't freedom right uh, and and there is that does play out it was yeah. it was he did fall into a trap there right well In yeah some I think that uh, it's meant paradoxically I mean I think that I would say, looking at how I feel about the book afterwards, that Tira is a very, very damaged character who is nevertheless his nearest actual soul companion. Mm. But as is often the case with two damaged people who might in some I, I, more ideal scenario, nurture one another, their recognition, their mutual recognition, is both only very partial and mostly takes the form of uh, re revulsion and, and infliction, inflicting of damage. You know, um, but... So I think their their encounter is somewhat degenerate, but it also is a glimpse of Bruno's missing insides in some way in his experiences with her that doesn't doesn't really present itself in any real way with Madchen. The fantasy, mm -hmm. as you say, mm -hmm. the fantasy trope of rescue, angelic rescue. It presents itself with mansion. And if you look at it on the face of it, um, you know, she should seem like the better prospect. But I think mm -hmm. in terms of 
an actual interrogation of Bruno's existential condition. Tira has something for him, but he can't take it, and possibly she can't give it. It can only be glimpsed in a kind of tormenting, you know, in a haze of, as you say, sex, sex, drugs, and, and, and aggression, and, and cynical um, intensity. The, I think you should feel deeply the loss of his contact with Tira after, in a way, uh, Tira is substituted. I mean, after Mansion is substituted, I should say. But it just doesn't mean you're you're not right that that scene should feel like he's he's being overwhelmed by something terrible or being drowned in a way in her presence and her aggression and you know and I mean on on the literal symbolic level of the game the book has a series of game moves hmm. he loses he has to lose to even glimpse winning <laughs> right. To 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 see underneath, he always has to lose the game. And if you conceive that the game is everything, then he can only be devastated by losing the game, even when it allows him to see more. Um, hmm. But you know, if you we were talking at the very start about the book as a series of. You know, you said, "Is it a code?" And I said, "Maybe it's a a rebus." Well, one of the most, for me, the most charged, you know, images in the rebus is Tara's unremoved cyst on her inner thigh, hmm. defiance about it not having to come out. Hmm. I see. Missed that one. It's a, it's a, it's a intense scene. There's a lot going on, but she reassures him when he finds this weird floating ball of hardness under the skin of her inner thigh that it's okay. She knows it's there, and it, it doesn't have to come out. Yeah, I remember the incident. I just missed it as a, another piece of code, another clue. Yeah. Uh, but that's that thing again. Yeah, that what's inside needing to come out or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't have the, I don't have an answer for you and I don't know. I, I certainly know the book is in a way designed as a series of very, um, violent anticlimaxes, you know, I mean the, the, the kinds of actions that you, you, you see cluttering up that last hundred pages are whether there's too many of them and it's an error, a compositional error on my part or, or not. They're certainly not meant to be satisfying or purgative, or you know, um, hmm. they're 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 all supposed to deepen your anxiety and frustration, your sense of misplaced, uh, you know, misdirected um, energy. You know, when 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 Bruno, who has been infuriatingly passive, starts to take actions, they're never they're never the right ones. Yeah, that's very clear. Um, I think, I mean, maybe I'll be re reiterating what I just said, but that 
for most of the book, or the first two thirds of the book, I, there was this sense of almost perfect symbiosis between the themes and the narrative. Mm -hmm. So everything that was occurring in the narrative was accompanied by a kind of aha, a very subtle, gentle aha of understanding why these things are happening. And, and then I began to lose that sense um, at a certain point. And, and so because of that, the, the narrative became less meaningful. It literally became less meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I'm still thinking about it and sort of, running it through my mind one thing that occurred to me whether this is might be completely off is this that um i mean you were wrestling with much bigger much bigger events in the last part of the book riots and uh you know subterfuge and espionage and counter espionage all in this mm -hmm. sort of quasi metaphorical way you're never quite sure how literal it is although i think it's pretty literal that Stolarski used uh, bruno as a as an agent provocateur to, to achieve some economic end. Um, so the, so one of the strong themes there is, well, I won't put it into words, I'll just put it, the question was, uh, I, wa I wonder just today, like, whether some of your disillusionment uh, with Occupy, maybe not specifically, but what Occupy represented was bleeding into the novel mm. through all of that. That's that's a great question. That's a really interesting question. I mean, um, of course, my experience at Berkeley as a place of um, kind of uh, cal calcified or trapped in amber radical possibility uh, predates Occupy, specifically. Mm. It goes back to my living there in the 80s and 90s. And I suppose that that uh, sense of unfulfilled desire for the radical expressivity to add up to something effective connects to um, connects to later ways in which I wrestled with my ambivalence about Occupy in uh, Dissident Gardens. That's probably right. But of course, this is always a self-accusation above all. It's about the way those radical possibilities are themselves a kind of, you know, as useless as a, as a tumor that gives me insights that I can't, you know, actualize. <laughs> as they live on in, in the body politic and they live on in my intimate self-conception as someone who comes from a meaningful place of, you know, uh, critique or um, dissident um, abreaction to the status quo, and yet it never seems to um, be produced in any effective way. It's, it's, it, 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 is about as um, oblique as Bruno's idea of himself as someone with extrasensory powers. Mm. Its only result is that he feels uh, less powerful. <laughs> 
and no one else is mm-hmm. sure that it's there at all. Because the description of the events in the last part of the novel, without going into them, it's always difficult to talk about a novel that you know, other listeners may not have read, and keeping the meanings as general as possible. But what you're what you're describing um, there, and I said, it seems to be in quite like you rush through it. Is my feeling in terms of really like understanding the machinery that you're describing but essentially it's the um, the whole uprising in Berkeley that Bruno partly instigates and partly jumps on board is manufactured mm-hmm. in the in, in the interests of Darth Vader of the elite yeah. which of course is something I've been writing about in terms of my family and social engineering and essentially perhaps partly why I wasn't able to read Distant Gardens, I don't know, but that I've never really had any, um, I won't say illusions because that's stacking the deck in my favour, but I've never had any beliefs about the possibility of social change through activism. I've just always felt that the ruling class rule, and that's the way it's always been, and probably the way it always will be, like it's a Phil Phil K. Dickian perspective, which I know that you share, like perhaps you're divided in that particular way. Um, yeah, yeah, I probably what... am divided. Because yeah. when you put it so simply, I'm, 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 I'm made, I'm made uh, uncomfortable. But I don't have an answer. I'm only made uncomfortable, so I'm sure I am divided. Hmm. And um, one of the things that uh, in the novel where you again referring to this, um, the shallow and the deep, is you equate or Bruno equates or discovers perhaps that there's an equation between the shallow with the ruling class and the deep with the, the mass of disenfranchised mm-hmm. poor, which I thought was a very interesting metaphor or an application of a metaphor, because it's not one that had occurred to me and probably doesn't occur to many people. But I think it's true, and it's interesting for me personally, is that you know I've, I've uh, extricated myself from the aristocracy as much as I can. I'm still working on the internal you know, removal of that facial tumour, that identity, uh, but it's becoming more and more manifest, and I've got this thrift store, and my daily dealings are with welfare people, you know, there's rich people in this town, but they don't shop in in our store, so essentially in dealing with the disenfranchised, and it does feel that there's more life there, and there's more depth there, um, and breadth and everything else, as opposed to this, you know, the point of the the pyramid where the supposed I is, this is like this identity prison that it's it's most intensely confining um so that all felt very real and valid in the novel to me but and um what happened because bruno himself he had this discovery that this is where he belonged was in the underlayer but he he didn't he didn't find a home there. yeah so uh, yeah is this i mean how much of this is uh, I mean, all of this is you wrestling with something. I know that because yeah. there's just so much blood in the novel. Yeah. So, I'm, but I don't know how to turn that into question <laughs> without it just being very pat. But well, I think it's I think it's right that I feel I come from a place that's inaccessible to me that is immensely poignant, but I find myself only making gestures that divide me from it. You know, the the the, the the revolutionary idealisms of the counterculture in the 60s, I'm exquisitely sensitive to them, 
because of my attachment and my sense of um, rootedness in them. But I end up um, I, I mean, I guess I find them both unsafe and ridiculous for for actual intimate application to my life uh, to you know to my self construction anything mm-hmm. you you'd see about me looks fairly you know normative and bourgeois from from the perspective of those um, idealisms mm-hmm. so it's a kind of exile self self uh, you know constantly self generating division from uh, from from a from a desire that I that's become displaced from me historically and um, and and practically and that I keep rehearsing again in in you know in the space between chase and and Perkis, right? How, how do you mean? Uh, well, I'm, I, one part of me is Chase and Stedman conforming to expectations and taking a useful but hollow role in a in a ongoing charade that I don't feel invested in, and the other part of me is this making this deep fugitive dissident investigation. Mm-hmm. That's doomed, and I can't find the the bridge between the two. And this is you as a writer we're talking about, as well as you as a human being yeah. in society. Probably both. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, because one of the areas of tension and hence creativity for me in reading you and writing about you is uh, in our relationship at all is the difference in status mm-hmm. I know and this seems to be so uh, defining for you and seems so in a sense because um, I don't view myself from the outside that way I just muddle through each day you know doing well the cliche would be you know putting my pants on one leg at a time feeling lost and distressed and like even I've probably spent whatever good, uh, you know, goodwill I've earned by now. And I'm, and I'm at any moment, I feel almost certain that I'm back to being a very marginal operator who was mistaken, mistaken for having the status that you're constantly um, referring to. An imposter. I imagine I would feel that way too, if it ever happened. But, um, I mean, I brought it up now. It's in terms of the very specifics of the things you're talking about. That your your status as a writer means that you can make a living as a writer, and without going into the details, I mean, you you are socially very well placed through your writing. Yeah, and my, so, my life has been created. The con- conditions of my current life have been created by my rec- by being recognized for my writing. But I'll I, I'll 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 quibble at least to the extent of pointing out that that's usually mistaken for a kind of um, luxurious financial independence that isn't the truth of my life or most writers' lives. I teach for a living. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I, as a person who grew up working in used bookstores and I'm surrounded by used books where you see me now on your screen, right? I, I'm constantly aware of the ephemerality of literary reputations. They're just basically being plowed under. Thousands of us are being plowed under at any given time into a kind of, it's as if it never occurred, you know, these, the, 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 this ocean of the out of print novels by people who had some kind of, you know, uh, recognition, uh, at some point. And so I don't really see it as counting for very much. I'm not even sure I'm in fashion anymore. <laughs> you you may be um, according me a status that was more true ten years ago, um, and um, and may certainly not be at all legible or important, except in a kind of footnote way. Oh, oh yes, at one point they were reading this guy mm-hmm. in forty or fifty or certainly a hundred years. So it really sure. doesn't separate us the way you think it does. And, you know, when you dared to ask whether um, whether seen and not seen had colonized my thinking, I mean, I've only had three now, maybe three and a half, uh, well, maybe less than three and a half, maybe two and two halves books written about me because seen and not seen is not all about my work. Um, and there's, you know, there's interesting writing about me in a couple of places, but writers who are remembered forever, who have the real status that you're awarding to me have a hundred books written about them. The only ones we remember are those who generate masses of scholarship because of their, um, unusual sway with critics and scholars or because of their immense popularity with a public reading public, which itself in turn seems to command scholarship. And there's no given that that's the fate of my writing. I could be as, let's say as briefly fashionable as, and then, you know, forgotten as my own hero, Thomas Berger, who, you know, I, I, I know because I care so much about his work, three or four, or maybe five books were ever written about his writing. So seen and not seen is one of the, one of the only things and easily one of the most interesting things ever written about what I've done. Why wouldn't it have mm. colonized my thinking? <laughs> um, yeah the separation between us in terms of this status is just, um, it's a construction that, uh, you could pick apart, I think by now much more diligently than you have. I think you have an attachment to it, (laughs) which is one that I'm interested in and compels me and doesn't, I don't, I don't disrespect it. I think that that kind of projection or fantasy is something that I actually think about and write about quite a lot myself. What is it to place someone in a constellation of, kind of cultural importance and then respond to them on those terms. I mean, it's part of what I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about, you know, when I have, you know, someone like Perkis Tooth feeling that, you know, the Rolling Stones song Shattered is a kind of a message and a command to him directly. I feel like you've placed me in the position 
that Perkis Tooth places in the song Shattered. You know, and, and that dance of fixation and reverence and uh, projection is very meaningful to me. I, I uh, am a fanish personality. Mm-hmm. So I don't mean to discredit your decision to place me in that kind of... Um, well, I'm invested in doing so, yes. of course, because I've got your eyes and ears, <laughs> right? So there's a, there's a complicity there, which, of course, as you know, is quite dangerous. Um, and the reason I bring it up now is, is, is specifically about the novel, because, uh, and what we were talking about, about the, the upper strata and the underlayer. Yes, and, yes. Because, of course, for the, for the poor, it, for the, the rich can say, oh, that's just a projection of the poor, that somehow we're happier than they are, which is probably true, that part. But it is a luxury of being high status to be able to see that as a construction, as opposed to, of in course. this case... Oh, of course, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You, don't have right? the, you don't have the luxury of, of seeing that, that, you know, uh, that people, the fact that people sometimes bother me and want to interview me doesn't really change me or my life situation in a very, uh, this takes up some of my time. I mean, no offense, right? right? But I mean, if, if everyone who wanted to, um, get a little tiny piece of me by like, you know, sending me a few questions on an email so they put it on their website also sent me five thousand dollars well i'd be doing very nicely but real power is comes with money real power is that true you know uh one percent luxury and it, instead i'm just a muddler you know i mean i'm i i uh, i i i do my own dishes <laughs> um and um so i'm i'm just a lot more like you kind of, you know, making these things. And then, and then I enjoy a kind of, um, strange experience of every now and then stepping into a room where, um, a lot of people feel as you do that, that my books accord me a a kind of magic status. And believe me, I participate in a very, very, uh, luxuriant way in that, um, moment when it occurs, but I'm, I'm, I'm mostly just a guy at home with my computer and my kids and my wife, you know, doing doing what I do. That's the end of the first part of my conversation with Jonathan Leatham exploring his new novel, A Gambler's Anatomy. You can listen to part two of this conversation at horticulture.com slash liminalist. That will be linked in the notes at newbooksnetwork.com. Thanks to Jonathan Leatham and to Marshall Poe for making this podcast possible. You are listening to the music of Origami Conspiracy.
Spend my day 